Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jude's letter to the church. Today we've come to the end of this epistle, verses 24 and 25. Jude's short letter to the church that was now dispersed and undergoing a certain level of outside persecution now reaches its climax and it's this doxology, truly one of the great uh, doxologies of all scripture, if not uh, two of the greatest verses in the whole Bible uh, here before us today. Jude bringing us back in uh, to focus upon God's grace, which has called us, which has loved us, which is keeping us. Starts that way in the book, doesn't he? Then for 22 verses, he describes for us in vivid and serious detail how there will be an inward struggle, that there will be those who creep up unnoticed from within the church and pervert the grace of our Lord and deny our only maker, the Lord Jesus. Uh, the Lord Jesus. So it's a heavy book. It's really heavy. But then we come to verse 24 and 25, the other slice of grace. On the outward, verse 1, he's loved us, he's called us, he's kept us. And now verse 24 and verse 25, he is able to keep you, you from falling and to present you blameless. Hear now God's word, Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, we are moved to praise you in this ascription of praise that has been ordained by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Jude. Lord, we are moved to worship you. Move us to worship you. Move us to obey you in response to your glory. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. My then two-and-a-half-year-old son, Nicholas, felt secure in my arms as I stood at the edge of a pool, holding him tightly and working my way towards the deep end. Now, I was already in several feet of water when I first held him, but he felt very confident, you can tell by the look on his face, as I held him. I held him tight, and I started walking deeper into the water. So I got deeper. I'd say to him, we're going deeper, Nicholas. We're going deeper. And he looked okay. Then the water touched his feet. The water rode up the back of his calf. Then the water hit his bathing suit. Then it got up over his waist. Then he had a look of panic. Then his big blue eyes got really serious. Who do you think he's looking for? Where's mom? Looking over my shoulder. And I said, I've got you. I've got you. And I'm walking down. And he's panicking more. He gets up to his right to the base of his shoulder blades, and he's looking at me like, I got to get out of here, Dad. I got to get, don't do this to me. But you know, the reality is, brothers and sisters, and you know this, he was in as much danger in the shallower part of the pool, wasn't he? He couldn't stand in that water. He would have drowned in it the same way he would have if I were not holding him in the deeper part. He was in just as much danger, just as much peril, every place in that pool, except for the fact that I was holding him. And I was able to hold him. He had no reason to be anxious at any moment because his father held him. And his perception of danger, while accurate if he were prone to his own power, depended upon his own power, would have been accurate. He would have been right to have the danger of falling and drowning. But he was confident based on me holding him early. And then as we got deeper, he grew anxious. 
but he was no less safe. He was always a safe. I don't know what deep waters you're in today. I don't know if you're struggling in the faith. You're struggling with this message of Jesus Christ. Am I saved? Do I really trust in him? Maybe there's some external pressure on you right now that you just feel like you're going to explode. Everything's coming down on you. Name what pressure you may be under. Do you know that your father is able? He is able, not just willing, but also able. It's one thing for me to will to do something, but to be able to do it, he's able to keep you from falling. And no matter how deep the waters get, you are no less safe in the arms of the Father. They can get as deep as you could possibly imagine, and you are still safe in his arms, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. Spurgeon said it well, that our great danger is falling and faultiness. All of us are concerned about that, I hope. But our great safety is divine ability and faithfulness by which we are kept from stumbling. It's true we are concerned with falling, but let us hope that it is only concerned so that we might not rob glory from God, not that we would actually fall completely away because it is him who holds us and is able to hold us and will not let us fall. In these last verses of Jude, we have a beautiful doxology. We are commended to the grace of God, the same commending that, was, that happened in verse 1, that we are called, loved, and kept. We are now commended to the grace of God with a declaration that it is God only that can give us the very perseverance he requires. In other words, you don't persevere by pulling up your bootstraps and doing better. You persevere because he gives you perseverance. Perseverance is a sign that he has saved you. Your ability to persevere, to bear up under those trials. That's the perseverance he gives you. His promise. It's based on his promise, not your ability to hold him. He holds you like I held my son. In the only way that my son would fall is if I would throw him from me, which I would never do. And he would never do it to you either. Your security is based on his promise, his character, his ability, not your promises, not your character, and not your ability. This is what Jude gives us to hold on to in these trying days of apostasy. He is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless. Let's look closely at these two verses. We have really two reasons for us to be called to worship him in this doxology. A doxology, as you probably know, is an expression of praise. After we take up the offering, we sing a doxology, giving praise to God. Doxos is the word for glory in the Greek. We are called to worship him because he first is able. Look at verse 24. Why do we worship him? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So he's able to do two things, and we worship him for this. One, he's able to keep us from stumbling or literally falling away. Secondly, he's able to present us blameless. Look, look at those separately. First, he's able to keep us from stumbling. Now, at the beginning of this description of praise, Jude directs us to his abilities. Now, before we go further with this ability to keep us from falling or this ability to present us blameless, why do you suppose that the apostle starts here? Now, other doxologies in Scripture, whether they be Romans 16 or uh, Ephesians 3, you will see these portions of Scripture that praise God just because he's worthy of it. And we know that's what worship means, worth-ship. 
He's worthy of it. In fact, you know that if he had never saved one of us, he's still worthy of praise. That's the glory of our God. So he really ought to just start, according to my wisdom, just with who I am. I deserve worship. Now unto him who is worth it. But he starts with his abilities first. Why do you suppose this is? I would submit to you there's a pastoral consideration here on the part of the apostle. The apostle's a shepherd too. And he's looking across the church and seeing the inroads that have come into the church, the error that is there, people, the sheep of Christ, wavering, doubting perhaps, not living in the full assurance of God's grace for them because of false teaching. So it's important for Jude to begin drawing us to worship after we've read this serious, uh, these serious 22 verses about apostasy, are being on guard for, looking out for, understanding what it is to contend for the faith, to build ourselves up in the faith. Now, in a sense, in a sense, he lets off by saying, now unto him, yes, he's worth it, and we'll get to that in a moment, who is able to keep you personal. It's very personal, very personal. A shepherd saying to the sheep, you're not going to be lost. If you're worrying about this apostasy that I'm talking about, he's saying to the sheep, you're not one of them. Apostates don't worry about it. They're not concerned about it. They shake their fist at God the whole way to hell. But for you, if you're concerned about falling away, you're concerned about faultiness, relax. Trust upon the one who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless. Keep you from stumbling. There are people that are dangling out there that are concerned. Maybe you're here this morning not with the assurance of your salvation. I hope that what you come away with is a sure acceptance of God's forgiveness for you in Christ, the complete remission of sins. He's able to keep you from stumbling. Keep means guard. He's guarding us. He's watching over us. He's keeping us from falling. Stumbling here returns to refers to falling. And it doesn't mean those occasions where we fall into an individual sin. We all have that experience. Every one of us has a daily battle with sin. And we fall at times, don't we? But falling away, that's, that's actually renouncing the work of Christ, like we read about in the case of the apostates that were before written of. It's not talking about that. It's talking about a falling away of, of all your devotion to Christ, all your trust in Christ. An ultimate falling is what he's guarding us from. What are some particular ways in which he guards us or keeps us from falling? First of all, he keeps us, in relation to what's said here, he keeps us from falling intellectually or in our minds as it relates to the errors that can creep in. There are ways in which we can think wrongly about God. In fact, you remember that we are to contend for the faith. That is, build ourselves up in the faith. Well, what's the faith? The faith is the Lord Jesus. It's the scripture that teaches about who he is, reveals him to us. It's the church to whom it's been given, to whom Christ has given his life for. So as we come to a correct understanding of this, he guards us from error that can creep in about these essential things. But he also guards us by keeping us from inward sin. Have you ever had the occasion where uh, your inner spirit, you might say, is saying that you should not do this, or you're feeling a conviction that the Holy Spirit is prompting you by something that has been revealed in His Word, that something is not right in your life. Not everyone else knows about it. It's something only in your heart. But you know that God is calling you to repentance, that He's moving repentance in you. He's keeping you from error. This is a good thing. Now, you respond to that conviction. Repentance is God's gift to us that causes us to turn. But this sense the spirit's testimony to our spirit is actually a way in which he keeps us or guards us from falling it's not pleasant when it happens 
but it's his care for us. He's keeping, he's guarding us. He does so with regard to error of doctrine, our inward sin, but also outward sin. You name it. Think of all the ways in which he has used someone to stop you from sinning, to confront you in sin that you are in. Uh, it could be a family member, could be your spouse, could be your sibling, could be a brother or sister in Christ in the church. Uh, whatever the case, someone cares enough about you and the glory of God and your relationship with him to call you to account, to call me to account for sin that I'm committing, outward manifestations of those sin. Those are mechanisms God uses to keep you from falling, to keep you from stumbling. Those of you who doubt your salvation, let me encourage you with Jude's words here. He's able to keep you. You're saying, but Tony, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea how many times I've done it. You have no idea what I am being tempted to do. I don't have any idea, nor do you have any idea that what assails me. But I know he's able to keep you from falling. I know that because his word gives testimony to it. And there's example after example of sinners even worse than us who he keeps from falling. I want you to walk away from here with assurance that Christ's work on the cross is enough and that he will, not keep, he will not let you go. He won't let you jump out. He keeps you. And the conviction you're feeling is a sign of the Holy Spirit's testimony in your life that maybe something needs to change. But he will not keep, he will not allow you to fall. He is able to keep you from falling. Look at the last part of verse 24. To keep you from stumbling is the first aspect, but also he then is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's able not only uh, to uphold us, uh, to keep us, but to then present us blameless. Now, let me give you a scenario. I think everyone has had some part, and maybe it's happened to you, or more likely all of us have done it at one time or another. We've spoken ill of someone. We've gossiped against them. They found out about it. We found out they found out about it. Now we've got to be in their presence. What do you feel like? A louse like you should. You feel horrible. You, can't, you, you said something wrong against this person. Even if there was something true about it, you still feel guilty in their presence. You can't even look them in the face. I remember a few years back, about 10 years ago, when I was working at a corporation, email was just starting to become more and more used within the company. And a lot of things have come up since then where people warn you about how you use emails. Well, they didn't warn us then. And one of our coworkers wrote a nasty email about our supervisor. And who do you think was copied on that email? Our supervisor, of course. So three of us got this email. And I have to admit, I was not righteous in my reception of this information. As soon as I knew what it said, I should have not read any further. But I entertained it. So I felt dirty myself having read the thing. And then two other coworkers in the same boat. We end up in this meeting where there's 10 of us sitting there. Our supervisor and the four of us who were party to this are sitting there. I could not even look the person in the eyes, let alone the person who actually wrote it and started it. It was a horrible feeling to be in this person's presence knowing we had wronged them. What will it be like if you stay in your own righteousness and stand before the holy God? How uncomfortable do you think you'll be then? But if you're clothed in the blood of Christ, you will stand in the presence of him blameless with great joy, all of us in Christ. That is amazing to me. We're called to worship the Lord for all his abilities. Think for a moment of his abilities. It certainly moves us to worship to think of him creating the heavens and the earth, doesn't it? Just look at the vast expanse of the universe. That ability of God to create moves me to worship for sure. An incredible ability. 
it moves me when I consider the ability of our God to create the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, uh, the creeping things on the ground. In fact, just this last week, I was standing watching a rock where a lizard crawled up on it. And it was a lizard like the size of a huge dragon. It was about that big, but it was big. And it was bright green when it got up on the rock. Within 10 seconds, it was turning brown and green. It looked like the rock when it was done. That's God's ability to create. And it moves me to worship him. What ability it takes to create man in his own image. What ability on the part of God does that not move you? Does not creation move you to worship the true and living God? His great ability to be patient with man in his rebellion and to actually devise a plan before the foundation of the earth to redeem man, to actually be patient with man, not strike us all dead like we deserve, but rather work out his plan for his own glory and patiently uh, working, methodically, raising up a people. How amazing of an ability is that to raise up a nation that he then does miraculous thing after miraculous thing in their lives. Everything from as big as the Red Sea and the plagues and all that is intending to those things and as small as making a donkey talk. All of them to build a nation from which the Savior would come. That's in a sovereign ability that makes me, calls me, provokes me to worship him. His abilities. Certainly we can worship him based on his abilities. It takes great ability to send his only son. I have three sons. And as much as I do, and I can honestly say I love you all, I would not give them for you. You would not give me your sons either, your son for me either, or your daughter for me. What is in the heart of God that he could take his only begotten son and give him for us? That ability provokes me, moves me to worship. It takes great ability to then raise him again on the third day. Brothers and sisters, all the various abilities of God revealed in the word of God move us to worship. But this one ability moves me beyond all of those. His ability, the ability of the Father to take a lying, gluttonous, idolatrous, arrogant, prideful, lustful, wicked, rebellious sinner like me and make me blameless before his presence with great joy. And you got a few on the list too. And he's going to present you blameless not always looking over your shoulder, no complete remission of sins in Christ so you can stand blameless. No doubt, no fear, no shame before God. I'm going to stand before God without shame someday. You are going to stand before God without shame. Can you imagine a day without shame today if you're honest about your sin? But eternity without shame because he has the ability to keep me from falling and then present me of all people blameless before his presence and what will be the reaction before his pre the presence of his glory with great joy i think this is a particular reference to the final appearing of christ when he appears and his glory is revealed the ultimate glory and the new heavens and the new earth are created it's at that time at the beginning of eternity as you might say that we will have a joy about this presentation of ourselves as blameless before the lord who will be uh, with experiencing joy will it be us will it be everybody and the reason is, is since the time of the garden, when God said, it's good. Since that time, we have not had that kind of shalom in creation, have we? But we will on that day, because we'll be presented blameless, and the Father will be able to look upon us as his children whom he loves, covered with the blood of his Son whom he loves. And there'll be great, there'll be no one looking over each other's shoulders, no wondering what someone's really thinking, no wondering what they said about me behind my back. No wondering how this person or that person is going to be treated. None of that. Great joy and peace in all of creation. 
when the Lord Jesus appears and his people are gathered unto himself, he's going to present us blameless. And it's going to be with great joy. We are to worship him because of his abilities. He is able to keep us. He's able to present us blameless. But let's also worship him because he's simply put, he's worthy. Look at verse 25. To the only God our Savior, the last verse of this letter. What a way to, to remember the, the last uh, idea from the apostle to us. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore. The only God. That only God then modifies all those other attributes. The only God. If he's the only God, that means he's the only one that really deserves glory majesty, dominion, authority. He's the only one that really possesses it. If there's other gods, they might share. If there's other rulers, there may be a split power. He may be most powerful, but he's not the only one who is powerful. But what verse 25 says is, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time. It always was, now, and it will be forever. Amen. Let's look at verse 25 more closely as we consider these particular attributes. First of all, he deserves our praise and adoration because he is the only God, our Savior. Just as the hymn writer wrote in the great hymn that we sung earlier, thou must save and thou alone. It doesn't say thou needs to help me get saved. Thou, you got to do most of it. Thou must save and thou alone. It's all of God. He's the Savior. And he's the Savior, as the text says, through Jesus Christ. His plan is to save a people for himself. To do this, he cannot in his justice overlook our sins. So his, our sins must be paid for. They must be punished. They must be atoned for. So in the wisdom of the Godhead, before time, the Son, if you will, figuratively anyways, volunteers to take that punishment upon himself. He takes it upon himself so that we might, by trusting in him and that work, might receive the righteousness of Christ in exchange for our, our filthy rags. That's the gospel. He's our Savior. He is our Savior through Jesus Christ. He's made it possible through his Son. To him alone belongs the glory, the text says. Our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to him be glory. What does glory mean? Think about the sport hero that's so excited about their victory. Recognize that all glory, even that glory, ought to go to God. What do you mean? Well, any glory that a human being receives ought to be turned towards the one who gives that person the ability to do anything, if not just breathe. All glory goes to him. All glory is to him. No accolade should go to man without it being diverted for, then to God. The credit, the respect accolades, the, everything that should go to someone for the great things they do, their dignity, the law, the honor, credit, any, all of it should go to him alone because only he is worth it. Only he is worthy. Also, it says in the text that he's our savior, to him be glory, and then also majesty, a term of royalty that is regal or imperial a beauty that is about him. He, he carries himself as a king. Really, the only one that should ever be referred to as your highness is God. He's the one that's majestic. He's the one who has that majesty. In fact, 
One of the most beautiful pictures of God's majesty happens when Jesus is in the middle of his humiliation. He's being beat down. He's being whipped. He's put a crown of thorns is put on his head. And Pilate, in his pompous arrogance, says to him, don't you know that I could stop this in essence? Don't you know that I have the power to release you? And the Lord Jesus, in all his meekness, refers to the majesty of God and says, don't you know that you can do nothing to me except for it to be given to you to do by my Father? What a picture of majesty when our Lord, going to the cross for us, would not be diverted by anything, but rather focus on the majesty of his Father and his Father's plan and his part to play in it. Majesty alone belongs to our God. Also, dominion. Dominion, uh, the fourth attribute to the fourth reason for him being worth our praise. All dominion belongs to him. That is, all kingdoms are under him. He dominates all, of course, with his justice and his benevolence, but he dominates all. Even though it looks at times, and you look at the evening news, like it's out of control. It's not. Don't be fooled. He's still in dominion over these things. He was, he is, and he will be. He always will be. And no amount of uh, terrorist groups rising up, no amount of political groups saying this or that, or any amount of things that might give you anxiety, none of those things really have dominion over him. He has dominion. He has sovereign control over them. He's never biting his nails with the Trinity, wondering if something's going to go wrong. They're not racing around. What do we do? Look what's happening on earth. He's still on the throne. You remember what happened in Isaiah, when the king died and they were worried, and what did they see? A picture of heaven. God is still on the throne. Has been, is now, and will be. All dominion to him. We need to make our choices based on who is the king eternal, not on what is happening temporally. All dominion belongs to him, and then, of course, all authority. From this verse, all authority lies in the hands of God. He has complete jurisdiction over the universe. He has complete liberty to execute his judgments upon the earth. And no man or no woman can actually challenge those things. None can. All power is his to dispense. There will be many who rise up, but they will fall. They'll be cut down. They'll be burned up like the grass. But he'll last forever, and his dominion and his authority and his power will be forevermore. You know, it's kind of sad when you think of how temporal our lives are. I've thought about it at moments, and one of the things that drives me is something I heard when I was a young Christian. Uh, an individual who was older said the thing that they wanted to do different, if they had it to do over again, and they couldn't, they were, it was too late for them, was to do more things that lasted beyond their death. And that really has been a driving force for me personally, because the fact is you are going to forget Tony. You will forget him. But the things that we do for Christ, the things that are eternal, are part of a, a sovereign kingdom, part of a dominion that expands our Father's glory. Those things last. It's amazing how quickly people forget us. It's just utterly amazing to me. I, you recall that one of my pastors died this year. He's only 41 years old. And I was amazed with how few people talked about it at General Assembly. We all knew this. Did we forget him already? You know what? To some degree we may have. And they're going to forget me the same way. They're going to some degree forget you. Oh, some will remember you. What things are we doing for eternity? What things are we doing for the dominion of our God, for his power, for his authority? Let's be real about what counts, who it counts for. This moves us to live for him with confidence. I would just say to you that as you are consumed with worshiping God for all his abilities and for 
all his worth, you will be compelled to obey him, to seek to please him by obeying him. Not to earn salvation, but to say thank you for salvation. And you, as you are consumed by God, you will seek to give glory to him. And you'll be sanctified. You'll be set apart. You'll be matured in the faith. Live with confidence because you know who is keeping you and is going to present you blameless. A group of botanists, a story goes, went on an expedition into a hard-to-reach location in the Alps, searching for a new variety of flower. When they spotted this particular flower, it was in a deep, deep ravine or a gorge, and they could not get it. None of the team members were small enough to fit in between the crevice that was there, uh, so they were unable. But they looked to the village next to them, a very poor village, and they were able to uh, get a young boy to be interested in getting a rope tied around his legs, basically, and drop down into this ravine so he could pick up the flower. The boy thought about it. It was a good amount of money for them. They needed it. He said, I'll do it, but wait. So he runs back to the village, and he comes back with an older man. He says, all right, tie the rope under my feet. I, I'll do it. But I want this man to be the one who drops me down into that crevice. He's my dad. You see, he was bold in something that scares most of us because he knew who held the rope. He knew who controlled his fate. He knew who had him in his arms, in essence. You, brothers and sisters, should be bold for Christ. He's able to keep you from falling. He's able to present you blameless. All dominion, all authority, all power is his. Don't be scared for Jesus. Don't take a defensive posture in culture. Transform it. He's able to keep you from falling. You will not fall away. He will not abandon you. And his kingdom is the one that lasts forever, not the kingdom of man. It should give us great confidence to go forth. Is the church militant? I don't mean the church obnoxious. I mean the church militant. That is, we seek to see all things come under our Savior's dominion on earth now. It's done by living confidently, knowing who it is that carries us and will not let us fall and is working to present us blameless. I want to close by just reminding you of our, our Lord's many promises of ability, uh, of his ability to uphold us, to keep us, to provide for us. And then also I want you to think about how people's lives have been changed because of what they know to be true about their God. We know that he's able to save. In Matthew 3, Jesus says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. In other words, the Jews were saying we're saved because of Abraham being our father. He said, Don't presume that. Do you know that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham? And in context, he's talking about the Gentiles. Who they thought could never be saved. He's able to save who he wills, brothers and sisters. Don't think anyone is outside of the pale of his redemption. He can save who he wills. In Hebrews 7, 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Don't tell me there's a sin you've committed that he cannot forgive. Don't stay in the sin, but don't, say that, don't think that there's a sin that he cannot forgive or he just looks at it so ugly that he cannot reach out to you. Don't cheapen the blood of Christ that way. He is able to save you for the uttermost, to the uttermost those who draw near to God. He's able to humble those who appear powerful. This is important when we look at the world today. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king, after God worked him down, humbled him, Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the king of heaven, for all his works are right and all his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, Nebuchadnezzar says, he is able to humble. He is able to humble. But he also is able to build us up and establish us. Romans 16 and one of the other great doxologies of Scripture now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. 
according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. <coughs> Romans 14.4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. God is able to do this. In Hebrews, he's able to relate to us and to help us, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, the Lord Jesus that is, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what you're going through. He's able to subdue all things to himself in Philippians 3 who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's able to dispense sufficient grace for whatever situation you're dealing with. Paul had a similar situation in his life, and God is able, in 2 Corinthians, to make all grace abound in you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's able to give all above more than we ask or think. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And one of my favorite pictures is Daniel's friends, his teenage friends, teenage friends. They're, ex they're, taking, they're exiled from their homeland. They're told they have to bow before this idol. You must bow, he says, the king says to them. Teenagers. So let none of us ex escape thinking that we cannot stand for Christ. Teenagers are told to bow. What does he say? What do, the, what do the, the three young boys say? If this be so, that is, they'll be thrown in the fiery furnace if they bow. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Note what they said. Our God is able. It doesn't mean he will, but if he wanted to, he could. And that alone, just knowing that he's able if he wants to, makes me stay put. I'm not bowing. Because you you're not able to do it. You can't deliver me from anything. You can throw me in the furnace and I win. You can, you can throw me in the furnace, I win either way. Because my God is able to keep me, so I won't bow. I don't care how far away my parents are. I don't care about everyone staring at me right now. I'm not doing it. Because he is able to deliver me, if it be his will. And finally, a great picture of the Apostle Paul in the last days of his life. He's writing letters to the churches. And here's the Apostle probably having a tough time seeing at this point of his life. He's in heavy chains, and he's writing a letter to a young pastor at a church that he helped plant called Ephesus. And this young pastor's name is Timothy. And Timothy is in the wilds of all there is to uh, have to lead a young church in the days of persecution, and the apostle facing death himself with the ones who would behead him probably down the hall, which is very vivid these days, isn't it? Down the hall, the beheaders are coming, most likely. He's writing, and he takes that chain, and he brings it over the desk, and it stops him from even writing as nice as he might. And he has his pen that may be this feather with some ink on it, and he pens these words at the end of his life to this young pastor, and they're to us too. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you see how he's confidently writing with the hangman coming, the executioner coming? He could still write these words with confidence because he's resting in God's ability to keep them. He goes on. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Take my head off, Paul says. Go ahead. Go ahead. For which I was appointed a preacher, 
an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, he writes to Timothy and he writes to us. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced, says Paul, that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, now and forevermore. So be it. Let us pray. Lord, we have great security in you. You will make us to persevere. God, we praise you for this. Lord, be with the saint who is here downtrodden, for the saint who feels like quitting the race, for the brother or the sister who is hurting right this moment. Wrap your arms around them that they might know that you, the one who holds them, is able to keep them from falling and to present them blameless. The glory of your coming with great joy. Lord, turn us into a church that is consumed with your glory, consumed with seeing others give you the glory that is due your name. We pray this in his name, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us respond to the word of